0: morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Brad. I am a pastor here at River City Church. Uh, we are in, well, it's the third week of our Advent series, but it's the second week because we canceled one and I just taught the sermon to myself here which got about the same response to my jokes. So cool, I'm getting used to that. Um, but whatever, you know. Uh, it was good to be back here. I was out of town last week uh, visiting uh, one of our uh, mother churches back in the Lansing area at Riverview. And so fun to be out there, but um, it always surprises me how much I want to be back here and with you guys after being away. So really thankful to be here um, with, with our family and uh, thankful to be here during the Christmas season. Um, The reason we are doing an Advent series, the reason that we like to talk about Advent and kind of work through the candles like we've been lighting at the end of the services, we think that there's a healthy rhythm for us in, at the Christmas season, reminding ourselves who Jesus is and what it was like to wait for his coming and now what it's like for us as a church to anticipate our fuller conformity to being like Jesus as well as what we have promised for us in the future. And so when we think about the work of Jesus in our lives, we think about both what Jesus is doing right now and how we feel and how he's transforming us, but we also look forward uh, to what he promises to do in the future as he continues uh, to sanctify us or make us look more like Jesus and as he promises to come back and ultimately make everything right again. Now, today we're going to talk about uh, a joy. We're going to talk about what it means for believers uh, to have joy. And joy is a pretty persistent theme throughout the Christmas season. And I think that that's uh, good, but I think that the way that we use the word joy during the Christmas season, um, it's not the wrong way to use the word, but we use that word um, like an adjective. So we use that to describe how we're feeling. Uh, we use that to say like we're we are joyful, we sing joyful songs, and in many ways, the way that the Bible uses the word joy is instead of being just a description of an emotion or an attitude or a feeling it's something physical that we can possess Joy is something that we can hold on to. It's not just an adjective. It's a noun. It's a thing that we possess. It's a thing that's deep within who we are. And so as we work through Scripture today, and we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter talking about joy, um, what we're going to see, I think, here is that what joy is described as in Scripture is an unfailing emotional anchor resulting from our unfading hope in Christ. That joy is an unfailing emotional anchor resulting from our unfading hope in Christ. Um, it's particularly important that we talk about joy in this way at Christmas because we want to stop today and just acknowledge that this season can be really, really hard. Um, but I think if you're like at least like getting into your 30s, certainly if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, Christmas and the emotions surrounding Christmas are probably a little bit mixed for you. That, that while it's a happy time and it's a joyful time and we involve or we uh, get to involve ourselves with our family in a unique way and we get to have all these memories and traditions, it's also a reminder of those that we've lost. Uh, maybe that's, that's a person we've lost. Maybe that's uh, a relationship that we've lost. Maybe that's uh, just a reminder of pain that we felt in this season. I, I don't know what it is about Christmas, but it does just seem unique, um, the amount of loss that people experience during this season. Just being, but what to say about it just seems like there's a unique amount of loss that happens in this season. Um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not at all um, outside of that. We've had great loss in our family during the Christmas season. And so Christmas is this reminder for us sometimes of of the loss that we've had of the people that we wish were around, of the way that we thought our lives were going to be, and maybe now they're not like that. And so I think it's particularly important that we talk about what biblical joy is in this season, because I think it's a season where we deeply need it, not just to enjoy the festivities. That's not our goal here, is that, like, you have really awesome Christmas parties, right? Like, I mean, make good cocoa. I don't care. But, like, that's not our ultimate hope. Our hope is that you have this lasting thing to anchor you through this season. And so what I want to do now is I just want to pray. um, And let's just take this as a time to acknowledge uh, maybe the pain that you're feeling uh, and and to say that that that's okay to feel that pain. It's okay not to have an outward emotion uh, that you're displaying of joyfulness at every part of this season. Um, But let's pray that God would help us as he builds in us uh, this joy that we can possess. Uh, Would you pray with me? God, it can be really hard to remember your goodness when we're hurting. Um, God, and it can be really hard to go through um, a season where, where it seems like every good thing is also a reminder of something that we've lost. Um, and so, God, I pray this hope that we have in Jesus. God, that we would remember that we don't have to go through the life that we are living uh, without something to hold on to. That, God, we, we acknowledge and we know that because this world is broken and things are not like they're supposed to be, that we are going to continue to experience hardship. God, that we're going to continue to lose those. God, that we are going to get sick someday and pass. Lord, that, that, that we are going to continue to have relationships and experiences that don't line up with what we wish or what we want. And so God, I pray that as we reflect on these verses from 1 Peter, as we see the source of our hope and joy, uh, that God, it would be this steady anchor in our lives, something that we can tie our souls to so that we're not thrown around by the pain and suffering in our world. And so God, we just take this moment to tell you that, that in many ways we're hurting. God, and to admit that often we try and Uh, fulfill our own needs and our hurt with things that just don't work. And so, God, we ask for your forgiveness for the ways that we have sought uh, to minimize our pain, to ignore it, or to fill in our pain with things that ultimately detract from you. And, God, we ask that you would help us to trust that you love us, care for us, and wish to provide for us in the times when we are hurting. God, in all this, I pray that we glorify Christ as we run to him as our satisfaction, as our hope, and as the thing that can keep us near you. Give us joy, Lord, an unfading joy. Amen. Uh, if you want to open up to First Peter chapter 1, uh, that's where we'll be today. We're going to start at, at verse 3, so we won't uh, read the introductions here. But this was uh, an epistle written by Peter um, to encourage uh, churches around him and, and, and some struggles that they were going to go through. And we'll get more into that as we go. But First Peter uh, 1, and we'll start here at verses 3 and 4, which say this. Uh, the foundation of this letter that, that Peter is writing here is the truth of the gospel. And so he starts this off, and he is starting it off with, with praise of God for what God has done. So he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's he's praising God the Father for the fact that he has gifted, that he has given Jesus, his Son, who was God to the world. And, and he defines the thing that he's kind of anchoring his praise in is that according to God's mercy. He has done these things. Now, now I love that word mercy, and I love uh, that phrase there, according to his mercy. Mercy, simply defined, is the undeserved favor of God. Mercy is undeserved favor. It's when God looks on us and he's kind to us, and he does that even though we're deserving of punishment, or at least deserving of not getting anything good. Mercy is undeserved deserved favor. Um, today is my son Michael's eight-year-old birthday. Um, there is a rule in our house that uh, really the kids aren't to get up and start watching TV other than on Saturdays. And so uh, my alarm on Sundays goes off at about 5.45. Um, and so I hopped out of bed with vigor in my step like I always do um, after snoozing three times and realizing that, oh no, it's 6.02. Um, and I hopped out and I went into the hallway and was about to jump in the shower and, and I heard a sound from downstairs right i heard the tv running and and usually as a good dad um i i would go down and gently correct him not just shout from the top of the stairs um, as i began to do and so i stepped kind of the top of the stairs and like did this because that shields sound from waking up the other kids i think um and just i was about to do you know what whatever it's his birthday and I showed him in that moment some mercy and just said, you know, let's, let's let it go. Like, it, it's his birthday. Like, he, he, he had asked yesterday if he could watch TV in the morning, and I kind of didn't want to deal with that or get in trouble for how I dealt with it. And so I was just like, I, I'm not sure. And so I said, let's, let's just have this moment. Like, we're, we're not only am I not going to get after him for this, I'm also just going to let him have it for a minute. Because in the grand scheme of things, it didn't matter in that moment. Mercy is this undeserved favor. It's when, when, when our good Father in heaven looks on us, and even though we are uh, deserving of punishment, even though we are not at all due his blessing and his grace on our lives, he looks on us, and because he loves us, says, I'm going to give this good gift to you just because of who I am and the way that I care for and love you. Not because of who you are or what you've done, uh, the mercy of God um, is best, uh, is best uh, identified when we think about the way that God has interacted with us in the provision of Jesus Christ. That we have is that we deserved death because of our sin, and He came to offer us new life. And so Peter reflects on the, this here as he says, uh, Praise be to God in, in Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, what has He done? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead. What, what does Peter identify as the mercy of God? The mercy of God is nothing other than the pure truth of the gospel. That because of God's goodness, because of the undeserved favor that he wanted to lavish on us, he gave us new life. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. There is one of those key words for today. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, it's interesting here that that what Peter does is he anchors this truth of the hope or the trust that we have in what God is doing. He anchors that in the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I don't know if you were around uh, for the weeks when uh, Sawyer, who's one of our elder candidates, taught on uh, the resurrection. Um, If you weren't, go back and listen to those messages because I think Sawyer did a great job of walking through why the resurrection is the source of so much hope for us as believers. And something that stuck out to me from that uh, was when Sawyer was talking about how death is a a sad, unnatural, and devastating thing to happen to us. That we live in a world surrounded by this reality of death, that that something is being robbed from us in death, that we are losing people that we love, that we are losing the life, maybe it's uh, someone's own life as they pass away, that death is unnatural, that it is destructive, and it's terrible. And so it's fitting that the place that uh, the hope of Peter is anchored, the hope that he wants to point them to in this moment at the onset in the gospel is the hope that through Christ we have new life in the resurrection of Jesus which promises us a life that doesn't fade away in death. That even though our our physical lives may end, even though we still have this, this constant picture of death in the world, of this unnatural beating down of our souls because of this thing that we look to jesus and we see his favor on us his mercy on us in that through being born again in jesus through placing our faith in him that we have a living hope and don't miss there the juxtaposition of those two words that he calls it a living hope as he refers to the resurrection that our hope is not dead Our hope is not stagnant, that our hope is living and active. It is there to constantly press against the truth of death that we see with the truth of hope in life that Jesus has secured in his resurrection from the dead. That resurrection, Peter says, secures for us, read here, to an inheritance. That resurrection from Jesus Christ from the dead secures an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven You. Now we're gonna get to joy in the rest of this passage, but we have to see here that the 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 root of joy is hope. That hope, this belief in these things that are unseen, this, this unshakable belief in what is to come, this life that Jesus has promised for us because of his resurrection from the dead, because of his payment for our sins. And so the three words here that Peter uses to describe the hope of Jesus that comes from the resurrection are that it is imperishable, that is undefiled, and that it is unfading. This inheritance, this promise of a thing to come, it's something that's not going to go away. It's imperishable. That means that nothing can damage that hope of Christ in you if your faith is in Jesus. Nothing can affect it. Nothing can tarnish it. Nothing can make it go away that this relationship is undefiled it is pure it is good that is unfading it's not going to just slip away out of our eyes and our mindset now now why is it unfading why doesn't it go away why is it secured in the sense it's secured because it is kept In heaven for you, and those words there—that the that the grace of God, that the hope of Jesus, that this undefiled, unfading, imperishable new life in the resurrection is kept in heaven for you—is one of the most encouraging things in all of Scripture to me. Because if it's kept in heaven for you, um, easy test here, just to wake you up: Are you in heaven right now? No, it snowed. It doesn't snow in heaven. Okay, it just doesn't. Like, I like the snow, but I just, it doesn't snow in heaven, okay? it snowed. You're not in heaven. There's, there's brokenness around you. Is your wallet empty today? This isn't an offering joke, right? Um, like, there, there around you is brokenness, destruction. You are not in heaven. And so if you are not in heaven, but your, your hope is held in heaven, then since you're not there, you're not the one keeping your faith. You're not the one holding on to it. The one who is preserving, the one who is keeping your inheritance, this promise that comes through Jesus Christ, this hope in his resurrection for you, Jesus himself is holding on to it. So you don't need to worry about whether or not you can blow it. You don't need to to come up with little arguments about, um, oh, well, here's why maybe my faith is perishable. Like, what if I start sinning again? What if I defile it because of who I am and the the way that I constantly screw up? What if my hope does start to fade because I get so discouraged with what's going on around me? These are natural emotions and natural things that happen to us in our lives. And that's why we are so grateful that we don't hold on to our faith. That our faith in and of itself is a gift from God. It is held by Jesus in heaven. He is preserving it. He is the one securing your inheritance. This promise of this new life that is to come. Our hope is held in heaven. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. It is secured in the resurrection of Jesus. This promise of the life that is to come for us as children of God. Inheriting it in him. Pick it up here at verse 5. Speaking of Jesus, here it says, who by, or so speaking of us in Christ, he says, you who are by God's power. The way that God is protecting you, the way that he is providing for you in times that are hard, the way that he is securing this salvation is he is giving you the gift of belief that he is supernaturally empowering you to believe in what Jesus has done, to hold on to it, to not let go of it, so that someday you will receive this inheritance of new life, of escaping from this world that you have been promised. He says, you by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, we need to address something in that phrase, because it says that we're being guarded for salvation, and maybe you read that and said, well, I thought I already had salvation salvation because of the fact that I believed in Christ. And you're not wrong, but here's what Peter is referencing here when he refers to this in this way. That though we have faith in Jesus now and we have been saved, we have been secured from the penalty of our sin, the, uh, our, our sins have been covered over, they've been paid for, we have right standing before God, he sees us as children of God because he looks on us and he doesn't see uh, our bankrupt account of righteousness, he sees Jesus' overflowing account of righteousness. You have been saved, you have salvation from the penalty of sin. But what Peter's doing is he's looking beyond just our salvation from the penalty Penalty of sin and looking forward to what God continues to promise to do. Um, I don't know who came up with this, but it's helpful because it's like a three P's kind of thing. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. Now in your life, God is saving you from the power of sin. That God is working through your life to, to help you to fight the control of sin in your life. He is convicting you of sin that you might want to run from it. He is helping you to fight your sin that you might be sanctified and look more and more like Jesus. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. You are now being saved from the power of sin. But what Peter's looking forward to here is that someday when you are removed even from the presence of sin, That right now, um, you don't only have to deal with the fact that you live in this world and you're screwed up. (laughs) You have to live with the fact that you live in this world and this world is really screwed up. There's pain and death and disease. You know, there is hardship, there is loss, and you don't have to look far to find it. So what Peter wants to point them to is the fact that through Jesus, by God's power, he has given you faith to trust in what God is going to continue to do, what he has promised to do in your life. The way that he has promised to care for you, that he has freed you from sin's penalty, that he is freeing you from the power of sin in your life, and that someday he's going to remove you from being even in its presence because you will be with him and he is holy. The point in this is this that having enduring faith as a Christian, that making it to the end of this life and trusting in Jesus, that that is not like a person who trains and trains and trains for a marathon and then they complete the marathon and we're like, yes, you did it. All your training paid off. You worked hard. You ran 82 miles a day and now we're so impressed that you ran 26, right? My point in this is that running a marathon is not that impressive. One, You've been training for like a year to do it. Two, why are you even doing it, right? <laughs> and I, I've made this joke before. And when I made it before, I like critiqued running overall. But then I like started running a little bit more. And so I started be like, okay, I can't. Now I'm making fun of myself a little bit more because I'm kind of getting into this. But, but I think the, the illustration still is poignant. The, 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 you completing the Christian life is not like a marathon or completing a marathon. It's like me getting up today and running a marathon. It ain't going to happen. I can run two, three miles, I'm good to go. About mile eight, I'm dead, right? Okay? You completing the work of the Christian life is not like someone who trained and trained and trained and worked it out and figured out how to complete this amazing human feat. You completing the Christian life is miraculous. It's unexpected. It is impossible without the help of God. And so much of our life, so much of our frustration, I think is pent up in us because we are trying to believe that we can complete it on our own. We think that Jesus saved us. We get that he paid for our sins on the cross. We get that he rose from the dead. We know that like, he's bringing new life. But then we think in the in-between, we're all on our own. We just need to work it out. and We better be really careful that we don't want to write from Jesus or he'll forget about us. What Peter says here is that our hope is held in the fact that your faith is supernatural in and of itself that the trust that you have in Jesus isn't because you cognitively realized it or because you kept yourself close to God. It's because God' faith is a miraculous thing that is the gift of God. And the outcome of that faith is this thing called joy. Verse 6. It says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says, in this you rejoice. You rejoice in the joy that God is at work, that he is doing this thing in you, that he is the one who is carrying you along. And Peter is not unfamiliar with suffering, and that's why he runs really quick saying, yes, in this you rejoice. In this you have joy. You have this anchor in life, even though for a little while you might suffer. Now, here's what I think Peter knows. So Peter spends a lot of his time uh, kind of in and around the center of uh, Christianity when it rises in Jerusalem. I think what Peter is seeing is that he is seeing the changing winds in the Roman Empire that were happening at this moment when he wrote this letter. This was a letter that was going to be written and then circulated through a whole bunch of churches that were kind of on the outskirts of where Christianity had spread. So most people that believed in Jesus that were going to read this letter initially were going to people be people that either were in like, like a super small church. We're talking like two or three three people, um, or they were people that were like spread out and didn't even have a lot of connection to any sort of Christianity. And what Peter is seeing is he is seeing that the tides of the Roman government are shifting and that there is persecution like you and I, praise God, have never experienced if you've spent most of your life in this country. There is a persecution coming to believers in this next couple decades that these people are going to go through, where they are going to suffer, where their faith is literally going to be a risk to their lives. And so Peter knows that this is coming. I think he sees the writing on the wall as persecution is starting to come in already, and as now Nero is going to step in and really amp it up. And so he wants to encourage these people with what it is that even through that amount of pain, pain directly resulting from the faith that they've been given by God, what is going to carry them through it. Peter says that, that the way that faith plays out into joy in our lives is like this, that, that it plays out that as the tested genuineness of our faith plays out. Is your faith, this gift from God, the way he describes that gift, he says, look, this gift from God, this faith that you've been given from God, it's more precious than even gold. He says, look, gold, even though gold is purified through fire, he says, ultimately at the end of the day, when the world ends, when we all die, gold goes away. Because Even gold that's tested by fire, that's put through all these rigors in the end perishes, but your faith does not because ultimately your faith is found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, Your faith in the end, the joy that you have found in Jesus, this anchor for your soul, is going to carry you through the worst things that you could ever imagine. And the way that it's going to pay off, it's going to pay off when you, at the feet of Jesus, get to praise him for who he is. And finally, for the first time in your life, experience what your soul has been longing for. When I was a kid, I just, I did not understand, like, what's good about heaven right because so I was like is there candy in heaven I'm like I'm not sure we eat and I'm like I think I'm out like right like because <laughs> this is the greatest thing I can think of right and you move through life and you find different passions and desires it's like oh is, is there is there marriage in heaven because I really like my marriage it's like eh, I don't think there's marriage in heaven I'm like okay maybe I'm out What Peter says here is that when Jesus returns, when we see Jesus face to face, that the payoff for our faith is that we get to worship Jesus, and that is not a bum gift because that's what you were built to do and have finally satisfy your soul and your heart. That being a believer in Jesus is being transformed to uncover the layers of our lives, to realize that what we've been built for, the thing that we crave, the approval that we want, the satisfaction that we can never achieve through money and possessions and friends and girlfriends and boyfriends and sexual satisfaction and all these things that we try and use to fill our lives and to bring us feeling and joy, to realize finally in that moment— What can satisfy us? And so as we are conformed to be more and more like Jesus, the way that we find joy is we realize what we were created for, that we were created to praise and honor and glorify Jesus, and that God, because of his great kindness, has looked on you and given you the supernatural ability to believe in him. And so Peter says, ultimately, you're going to suffer and hard times are going to come. But then at the end of the day, you're going to see Jesus and your faith is going to pay off. If our joy is founded and secured and sourced in Jesus, then we need to look to him in our most painful days. Look at verse 8 and 9. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Faith, when we're suffering, looks like reliance on God even when the emotion of joy and happiness feels far away. He says, even though you can't see Jesus right now, you love him. Even though now you don't see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. Um, people who have been through seasons of unique pain in their life can teach us more about joy than we'll ever know. Uh, you know, I, I've just had a few opportunities in my life to, to be around people that, that have gone through um, just horrific circumstances. A um, close friend that I worked with uh, a few years back, um, older than me, um, watched him and his family as they uh, watched their son get diagnosed with terminal cancer, have hopeful moments where maybe they thought they would beat it, that he'd be the miracle, and then slowly watch his life decline to uh, an early, early death at 14, 15 years old. And I am blown away by the faith that they have in Jesus. I'm blown away by the way that even though they are to this day grieving in a way that will never cease the joy that I see in their eyes and hear on their lips. If, If there was ever a reason to run away, that'd be it. And yet in our pain, in our suffering, we rejoice with this joy that Peter calls inexpressible. An anchor that is secured And our souls that is unfading, that is immovable, it's inexpressible. And in experiencing that joy, he says, in that, you are filled with glory. That In that joy, even in the worst of circumstances, even when you couldn't possibly think about happiness... That you're anchored in this way, that in this you see the glory of God and you see just a glimpse of the outcome of your trust in God as he saves your soul. That you see a picture of the miracle of God in your life in those things. Now, what blows me away is how Peter, just a few verses down, starts to apply this. Uh, Pick it up in verse 13. Therefore, so he's saying, like, based on on everything I've taught you to this point, here's, here's how I want you to think about it. Our joy that we've been given in Jesus, this anchor that is immovable, this trust from God that is a supernatural gift to us, ultimately what we hope that that does in our life is it motivates right living. That as obedient children of God, as we see God is our joy, as he is there for us through our pain, that ultimately we are conformed to look more and more like Jesus. And this is happening supernaturally as he sanctifies us through the Holy Spirit. And this is happening that as he gives us the gift of faith, we are leaning into that sanctification. And we are more and more saying, yes, I want to look like this, even when it causes me pain. That yes, I want to look like Jesus looked. That I want to be holy like Jesus was holy that ultimately the way that faith in God plays out is just like anyone who's had a good mom or a dad they want to be like them they want to emulate them they want to do what they do because they are the standard of goodness that they see in their lives we look to Jesus as our standard of what is truly good and perfect and so we measure our lives and we should start to measure our joy by how we reflect him now, here's what's encouraging in this. This is Peter writing here. I don't know if you remember too much about Peter. Peter is a spiritual screw-up, right? Peter's a loser. I love Peter for this reason. When you learn to study Greek in school, the first thing that they let you uh, translate is Peter because he wrote like a four-year-old, and they're like, here, we'll give you this, right? Like, Peter's some Greek and mostly just sketches, right? Okay, it's not true. It's all actual words. But he's, he was like the worst writer of all the biblical authors, Peter was a mess-up. He wasn't a highly uh, accomplished academic man. Peter was a guy, uh, remember? So Jesus says to his disciples, uh, someone is going to defy me, and Peter's the first one to storm out and go, not I, Lord! And then 20 minutes later, he's like, I never knew that guy. I don't know what's up with him. Somebody's ear got cut off back there. I don't even know, right? Like, They're deep Bible jokes we're doing right now. Appreciate your playing with it. Peter was a spiritual... Screw up. I mean, there's a point in Scripture where Peter rebukes Jesus. He's like, stop saying that, Jesus! <laughs> Can you imagine the restraint of the creator of the universe to not be like, I'm going to end you now. Like, right? Like, the Thanos thing, right, Troy? Am I right? Did I do the right hand? Did I do it right? Okay, nerd. Um, like Peter Peter is not the guy that you expect to challenge you towards holiness. And so Peter doesn't come at this from a lofty position of somebody saying, hey, look at me, I've got it all figured out. Peter is just testifying to what he's seen Jesus do in his life. That though he was a screw-up, that he was no one to be looked at and magnified, that he was no one to be dependent on. It's to Peter that Jesus says, on you, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail instrumental in the starting of the church. He says this because he has seen how in his life his faith has been a gift from God, that God has stayed near to him even when he did mess up. And So what Peter is pointing us to here is that as we walk forward in the faith that God has given us, we set our minds on the things that God has told us will bring us joy. The things that God says will protect us. The things that will finally bring praise and glory, honor to God. And that through the power of the faith that he has gifted us, we press forward and we try and emulate our good and loving Father. Lastly, he finishes saying this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Uh, How do we hope that our joy in Christ plays out in our lives? How do we hope to steward this gift of faith that God has given to us? One, like we just said, we hope to be conformed more and more to look like God, to look like Jesus, this perfect representation of God. Two, we hope it motivates us to love each other well. That our hope in Jesus frees us to love each other and not worry about the cost. That our hope in Jesus points us to the fact that we have hope and joy in something that is external of ourselves and is eternal and imperishable. And so we don't measure our worth by how many possessions we hoard, how much free time we have for ourselves. We measure our worth by the way that the joy that we have in God plays out in the way that we love each other in the church. And then we show the love of God to tell others about Jesus in our community. Um, there are so many ways you can find to do that around here, to love each other well. And, and, and I honestly, like, it, one of the greatest joys is that like this isn't a church right now where we have to be like, man... You need to work work harder at this. Like, you're not caring about each other. You're not, like, I'm seeing people care for each other day in and day out. Love each other well. Take care of each other. Forgive each other well. Provide for each other well. And we want to do this even better in our community. That we want the love that we have for Jesus to flow outside our walls. And that's why we partner with ICCF with that tree in the back. I wanted to give you an opportunity um, to give financially to people uh, that, that don't have much in an organization that's trying to help them just live in healthy, safe, beautiful housing. Um, and I encourage you, figure out ways during the Christmas season to be generous through means like that. Be generous to your body here. Be generous to each other in the way that you care for And love each other. Ultimately what Peter says. Is that the joy that we have. This joy that we possess. This unfailing anchor. That never fades. Because of our faith given to us by Jesus. This this joy overflows. As we spread the gospel. Reminding each other of it's truth. And speaking it. Proclaiming it to our neighbors. Who don't know Jesus yet. Let's pray and ask for God's help in this. God. We're thankful that you have provided for us um, a joy that is not just a feeling. uh, A joy that is not uh, built on our circumstance, but a joy that is secured in the faith that you have given us. A display of the mercy, the favor that you lavished on us that we didn't deserve at all. So God, as we remember this, as we celebrate in this season, God, as as we have days where we just feel blue, God, would you give us the gift of faith? Would you secure a hope for us in the person and work of Jesus that can never, ever be changed, that is imperishable, that is undefiled, and will never fade? I praise your name. Amen.